welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. Welcome to Plenary Session. This week, I'm out of town, and this week we have question, question, question. We've got three questions to keep you sharp while I'm traveling. Who knows where I am now? I'm probably in Bond University in the Gold Coast, Australia, but could be anywhere. But I'll be back in December for more Plenary Session Monologues. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. I'm back in Plenary Session HQ with Ian Straley for Question of the Week. This is inspired by the Step 2 USMLE CK examination. Ian, how are you? I'm doing really well. Excited to be back for another round of questions with a medical student. Questions of the Week with a medical student. With, oh yeah, that's, that's questions Audrey's, of the, that's Audrey's that's segment. That's Audrey's segment. <laughs> this is questions with a Step 2 ready medical student. Correct. Have you taken the exam yet? Getting close. When is it? Uh, about a month from now. I'll like... A little less than a month. So you're studying for a long time. Yeah, about three weeks left. I thought the old saying was step one, two months, step two, two weeks, step three, number two pencil. Is that, that right? I have <laughs> heard that from you once before. I like um, to say it. And I think <laughs> from you, I've heard something similar <laughs> yeah, um, from, from, from other people, oh, which good. is like, so if you, whatever time you took for step one, just divide it in half Yeah. for step two. And then the number two pencil thing, I haven't heard that before so yeah. that's all you <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess i'd say that even though the um the amount of time that we study for this and the stakes may be lower the content is probably more interesting than step one we haven't done a segment on this podcast step one questions but maybe we should It'll be yeah. interesting yeah i think i think step two questions are like you said more uh a little more interesting a little more clinically, clinically relevant, relevant. Mm-hmm. definitely yeah. and uh, it's been easier i think doing hours on end of these type of questions than studying for step one, which felt a little more esoteric. And a lot of the things I thought, I'm probably never going to need to know this again. And you were probably right. You were right about that. Yeah. All right. Um, Yeah. Tell us what's the question this week. So this week we're going to talk about um, sensitivity and specificity, every medical student's favorite topic. Oh, that's right. Um, So this is. It's great for listening after lunch. Yes. (laughs) It'll wake you right up. Okay, so here we go. Okay. A physician on an internal medicine ward notices that several of his patients have hyponatremia without any associated symptoms. Mm-hmm. Severe hyponatremia is often defined as less than 120 milliequivalents per liter, um, and it is associated with altered mental status, coma, seizures, and it warrants treatment with hypertonic saline. Mm-hmm. However, because some of his patients are chronically hyponatremic with serum levels less than 120, but they're asymptomatic, he's considering decreasing the cutoff for severe hyponatremia 
down to less than 115 milli equivalents per liter. Mm -hmm. So changing this cutoff from 120 to 115 would affect the validity of serum sodium in predicting severe hyponatremia in which of the following ways. So lowering the cutoff to 115 would increase the specificity and decrease the negative predictive value, decrease the specificity and increase the negative predictive value, decrease sensitivity, increase negative predictive value, increase sensitivity, decrease positive predictive value, etc. So maybe the best way to look at this is first looking at what does it do to specificity and then what does it do to positive and negative predictive value. Wow, okay, so the question is, we're in awards where hypoglycemia is defined, severe hypoglycemia is defined as a milliequivalence 120 per liter or less. So that's 120 milliequivalents per liter, that's the cutoff. What would happen if you lowered that to 115? Okay, keeping in mind that not everyone who has less than 120 is symptomatic from it. Okay, so let's think about this. Sensitivity. So sensitivity is the ability of a test to pick up people who are positive to test positive. So among all the people who are positive for the condition, what percent test positive? And the answer here is that the easiest way to improve sensitivity is to have a very permissive cutoff, is to go the other way. So if it was like 150, then you're increasing your sensitivity because you're going to find that hypoglycemic symptomatic patient who was 121. Everyone. You know, everyone. Everyone can be hypoglycemic. Yeah. Right, yeah. So, I mean, that's the easiest way to increase sensitivity. Okay. Specificity is mm -hmm. the opposite. Specificity is the proportion of people who don't have the condition, who don't have severe hypoglycemia, who test negative. So if you make something more stringent, so one, make it from 120 to 115, you're making the test have increased specificity. You're increasing the specificity because the people who, among all the people who are negative, more of them are now likely to test negative. Correct. You're making the, the standard more difficult to meet. Therefore, people who are sort of borderline or might not be included in some studies or uh, by some measures. They're going to fall out. Are going to fall out, but people who and are that's really... And more negative people there, yeah. Right. And the people who really are severely hyponatremic in this case would be more likely to be included. Uh, now you're getting the positive predictive value. So let's talk about those two. Uh -huh. Okay. So the positive predictive value is among people who test positive, what percent are truly positive? Right. If you test positive, what's the probability you're actually positive? And I think what you're doing here by lowering the cutoff is if you test positive, you are more likely to have the symptomatic condition. You're increasing the positive predictive value. And the negative predictive value is the opposite. If you test negative, what's the probability you actually are negative? You don't have the symptomatic condition. And in this case, I think you're decreasing the negative predictive value because you are making it more likely that there are some false negatives who are testing negative. Correct. Yes. So the answer would be... Um, decrease sensitivity, increase specificity, increase positive predictive value, and decrease negative predictive value. That's exactly right. But then the question is, which answer has all those things in it? <laughs> <laughs> we'll just go with choice A. <laughs> is that the one? Is yeah, that? that's the one. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So like you said, um, the, the way we were taught um, is that specificity and sensitivity are properties of the test itself. Correct. Whereas negative predictive value and positive predictive value are in are affected by the prevalence of the disease, so it's more about the uh, likelihood that the individual with that test result actually has the disease or not. Right, because you need to know the ratio of true negatives to false negatives for 
um, positive and negative predictive value and true positives and false positive for positive and negative predictive value. You need to know that ratio, and that ratio is in part dependent on the population characteristics. But sensitivity, the proportion of people who are positive who actually are identified as such, and specificity, the proportion of people who are negative who are identified as such, these are independent of the prevalence of a condition right. and are actually characteristics of the test itself. That's a good to know. Yeah. So good, what's the way? What's the way somebody can can learn this? I think you have to. I don't know. You have to sit down and do some writing. It's probably not best learned in an auditory format. It's yeah. a visual thing to learn. Yeah, and I think you know multimodal learning for me is what it took. Just seeing it a number of times, and then thinking about it in different ways. Uh, a mnemonic that was helpful for me was yeah. so spin and snout. Okay. Uh, so specificity, spin, okay. SP. Specific uh, test, rule in. Yeah. If a test is specific, and if it's positive, you can rule it in. Okay. And then snout for sensitivity. The sensitive test is negative. You can rule it out. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And I think historically, one of the testing paradigms of medicine is you initially go with a sensitive test, mm -hmm. uh, and then you do a confirmatory specific test. That's often the case, or mm -hmm. it had been at least uh, for many in many disciplines. Okay. All right. Makes well, sense. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for coming on for Question of the Week. Great. We'll see you next time. I'm back in Plenary Session HQ with Sven Olsen for Question of the Week, Hematology Oncology Boards Edition. Sven, it's been ages since we've seen each other. In fact, we've recorded four in a row just now. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, <laughs> so tiring. I'm still wearing my not work-approved shoes. Yeah, and I mocked you for that on a prior episode. But I just want to point out, you know, when Ken Jennings won all those Jeopardy episodes, I think he had to record five a day. That's pretty good for Ken Jennings, and I have a lot more respect for Ken Jennings now. Am I allowed to comment on your uh, skin-tight bike pants that you're wearing? First of all, the, the pants are loose. It is just the <laughs> calf portion that is, in fact, a bit on the tight side to prevent the dreaded pant leg and chain. Yes, as a fellow cyclist, I can totally appreciate that. The so pant leg and chain is, 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 is death. Oh, yes. It's a, it's a game over injury. So... On that uh, inappropriate comment on your attending's attire, uh, let's go to <laughs> question of the week. What do you got for us, Sven? Okay, uh, we're continuing our trend of GI cancers here. This is a 65-year-old man. He has a history of GERD. He develops progressive dysphagia over two months. Dysphagia, not dysphagia. What's, Swall what's, swallowing sorry, difficulty. Say it again. What's the difference? In your dysphagia. Dysphagia could be trouble speaking. Dysphagia is trouble so speaking. Dysphagia. On, on paper, it's easy to see the difference. When I'm speaking, I want to make sure you know it's dysphagia. He has trouble swallowing. Yeah, I bet that it's probably one of the most sort of slurred over words. Yeah. Okay, so now the listener is like totally lost the question. Let's Let start, me start over. Yeah, start okay. over. Okay, he's a 65-year-old man. He has GERD. He yeah. has progressive difficulty swallowing <laughs> okay, it's over two months. He has an EGD. It shows a partially obstructing mass right above the GE junction. They can they biopsy it and it's confirmed to be a moderately differentiated adenocarcinoma. Immunohistochemistry shows HER2 expression is three plus. Subsequent endoscopic ultrasound characterizes the tumor as a T3 lesion, with one periesophageal lymph node suspicious for tumor involvement. And a PET CT does show that that tumor, the primary tumor, is FTG avid, as is one periesophageal lymph node. He has no evidence of distant metastases. The patient does not have any major comorbidities. So the question is, which of the following is the most appropriate next step in the treatment of this patient? A, surgery 
uh, in the form of an esophagectomy with subsequent adjuvant chemo radiation. B, neoadjuvant chemo with fluoropyrimidine cisplatin trastuzumab combination, followed by esophagectomy and further postoperative chemo. C, neoadjuvant chemo radiation with fluoropyrimidine cisplatin trastuzumab combination, followed by esophagectomy. Or D, neoadjuvant chemo radiation with carboplatin paclitaxel, followed by esophagectomy. Those are a long, wordy answers. Whew, yeah. So I guess what you got here, 65-year-old with uh, esophageal adenocarcinoma, and it's right at the GE junction. So that puts it in play where there's a bu- there's a few randomized trials that start swirling in the picture that you're kind of thinking about. Now you're saying HER2 IHC is 3+. plus. That's through the roof. Yes. Um, and the EUS was done and a PET-CT. So this is a pearl I picked up a few years ago in practice, which is that um, that if you get a PET-CT and you exclude distant disease, guidelines do recommend the performing of an endoscopic ultrasound um, as well, uh, because the avidity of the primary lesion is often so bright, it can obscure pathologically involved lymph nodes on the PET-CT. Um, in this case, um, the PET-CT did in fact find that the primary tumor is involved and one periesophageal lymph node. And the EUS is this is a T3. So it's a T3N1 uh, tumor. Mm-hmm. And there's no evidence for distant disease. So I guess one thing worth saying is, you know, we gloss over in this question, but you know, the this is still a, a highly um, sobering prognosis to be given with, uh, you know, with 36 month lethality, uh, you know, maybe median survival of like 36 months, something like that. You know, like it's, it's, it's not, um, uh, it, it's, it's, it's sort of, a, it's still a sort of a life altering diagnosis and we shouldn't forget that. Okay. My options are uh, surgery with esophagectomy and then adjuvant chemo, neoadjuvant chemo with trastuzumab and then postoperative chemotherapy, neoadjuvant chemo radiotherapy with trastuzumab followed by esophagectomy and then neoadjuvant chemotherapy with carbotaxol and esophagectomy. I'll say one thing that makes the question easy for me which is I know that the only data that supports the addition of HER2-directed therapy in um, GE junction and gastric cancer is the TOGA trial. The TOGA trial enrolled people who were 3-plus IHC. I think it's a little bit more stringent than those breast cancer trials. And, of course, it found a very modest to marginal survival benefit of something like a month or two months. And the TOGA trial was not for... Um, patients with stage 3 disease or stage 2 disease. It's not for people in whom we're pursuing curative intent. So anything with trastuzumab in the neoadjuvant setting is wrong. So that drops two answers. And then I convenient. think... Yeah, that convenient. That makes my life easy. Um, then I think the answer is clear that this is a patient who'd probably be eligible for a randomized trial called CROSS. And CROSS, randomized patients to neoadjuvant, carbotaxel, followed by esophagectomy. And it's a nice trial... Uh, in the sense that the carbotaxol regimen um, in combination with radiotherapy is actually, um, you know, fairly well tolerated and people do get through it, although it's not a total walk in, walk in the park. So I would say the answer is, is cross-trial regimen. What do you say? I think you're correct. It's the neoadjuvant chemo radiation with carbotaxol followed by esophagectomy. So it really comes down to, I mean, after you eliminate trastuzumab, it comes down to surgery and then adjuvant chemoradiation or neoadjuvant chemoradiation and then surgery. Um, and I know that I've seen both done, but actually there is data that neoadjuvant is tolerated better and actually has a survival benefit compared to adjuvant Shut chemoradiotherapy. Shut your mouth, Sven Olsen. Shut your mouth, Sven Olsen. Really? Yeah. But I, I suspect it's got, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know the answer to that, but to my knowledge, that's not a randomized study, so I worry about some selection bias in that. 
is it randomized or is it sort of an observational study? I could be wrong. I don't know. Okay. Well, <laughs> you've ba- I've got you to back away 100% from this claim. Yeah, But I much. think, I mean, I don't know. I, I hate to, to, to admit it, but I do think the cross-trial and the cross-trial protocol is perhaps like the easiest to do of all these kind of protocols. I mean, I don't know. I'm trying to put this just right, which is that this is not an easy thing to go through, man. It's not easy at all. It's not easy to go through this chemotherapy. It's not easy to go through this radiotherapy. It's not easy to get this esophagectomy. But of the options, a cross trial is perhaps the one where you can get most of the people through or as many as you could. What else do you got as teaching pearls? Well, I'm looking up to make sure I was correct in saying that just now. Okay. Adjuvant versus neoadjuvant. Um, I will say that there, there actually was an ASCO abstract this year the HERFLOT trial, single-arm phase two trial of FLOT plus trastuzumab for uh, local regional esophageal cancer. Uh-huh. They didn't really report anything other than mostly the kind of R0, the rate of R0 resections uh, and PATH-CR rates. And they were comparable to cross-trial, essentially. So the PATH-CR rate was like 22% in this trial, and I think it was around 29% in cross rate of R0 resection was 93%, but they didn't have PFS or OS data. And but they don't have a control arm. Nope. They don't have a control arm. And but I'll there tell are you, other trials yeah, well, I, currently I, ongoing to look at this. Yeah, I'll course. tell you. I'll tell you what's going to happen. Okay, tell me. They're going to fail. I'll tell you why they're going to fail. I mean, I don't know. I'm, uh, this is like a uh, this is a total non-board review sanctioned answer. Uh, but <laughs> they're going to fail because you're taking an agent that in the metastatic setting is not that impressive. And, you know, trastuzumab is impressive in some settings uh, in the metastatic setting, like breast cancer. And in that setting, there is an adjuvant benefit to it. But when you're taking a drug that is a very, very marginal drug, drug. And in my knowledge of every single randomized control trial ever run in the history of oncology that took a marginal targeted drug in the metastatic setting and applied it to the adjuvant setting, they have all been negative. Avastin, colon, uh, cetuximab, colon. Um, Every drug that's marginal targeted in the metastatic setting will will fail in the adjuvant setting. The only successes we've had from targeted drugs in the adjuvant setting, uh, imatinib in GI stromal tumor, where it's a very potent drug in the metastatic setting, and trastuzumab in breast cancer, where it is also kind of a fairly potent drug. So I think they're going to be negative. Uh, and that's why uh, these uncontrolled studies are they are super useless. And actually, somebody needs to write some like really nice article about where uncontrolled studies are actually have like no real value. But anyway, that's another that's another aside. So so what else did you discover? I discovered something to back up my claim. OK, this is a from Annals of Surgical Oncology 2012 by Ando et al. Randomized trial comparing postoperative adjuvant chemo with cisplatin and 5-FU versus preoperative chemo for localized or advanced squamous cell carcinoma. And what's the preoperative chemo? Cisplatin 5-FU? Same. Okay. Uh, Eligible patients with clinical stage 2 or 3 squamous cell carcinoma were randomized to undergo squamous only. Surgery followed by or preceded by chemo with cisplatin or 5-FU. What's the sample size? Plus 5-FU. It was 330 patients. Okay, that's decent. Uh, and the, let's see, overall survival in group two neoadjuvant was superior to that of group one. That's they don't actually give numbers, but it was significant by a p-value in this abstract. That's, uh, that's, and you know what? I just want listeners to know, this is what the future, <laughs> that's what, that's what, this is what people really, really, statisticians are going to murder us for saying this. When, <laughs> if you're not quantifying the magnitude of benefit, but you're giving a p-value, people oh, are going to blow their top. Wait, but if you'd let me continue, oh, I actually sorry, have numbers sorry. here. Okay, Updated okay, analyses yes. showed that the five-year overall survival yes. was 43% yes. in the 
adjuvant chemo, mm -hmm. 55% in the neoadjuvant chemo for a hazard ratio of 0.73 with a p-value of 0 0.04. Nine, 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 nine. The, but but um, that that was the evidence. 0 0.04 or 0 0.04999999? 0 0.04. There was only two significant figures. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've yet to see a paper that reports the p-value out to more than two significant figures. Okay. Okay. Well, well, okay. So, okay. So um, anyway, okay. But I guess what I'd say about that study to put, to put a few caveats where I think it's kind of interesting is one, um, it, it, like we don't really just use platinum and, um, and 5-FU as sort of the chemos in any of these regiments. It's not in magic. It's not in cross. Uh, it's not in, it's not in the French. Um, um, and then the other thing I'd say is... Well, magic, ECF. ECF, but you got the epirubicin. Yeah, okay, but... Okay. And then the next thing is um, squames only. And the thing about squames in this setting is, like, I think a lot of us do think that there might be some subset of people with squamous that you can cure uh, with new adjuvant chemoradiotherapy and that the surgery might even be able to be spared, so perhaps someday in the future. It's the adenos that you don't think you can cure with the chemo RT. And the other difference in this trial I just cited was that there was no radiation involved. Oh, and there's no radiation. Okay, so, well, so but, there's... But it's, it's, it's good to know. And I, I don't know. I I mean, I think there's something interesting there going on, which is maybe biologically for these kind of aggressive cancers, there is some value to trying to get the chemotherapy and prior to sort of a very um, yeah. difficult surgery that may affect your ability to eat and drink and get nutrition afterwards and tolerate chemotherapy. I mean, in the absence, of, uh, other than that, I'm not sure actually then where they are getting the answer to this question other than the fact that there is the cross trial that shows such great outcomes, but comparing... A answers A to D, either adjuvant chemoradiation or neoadjuvant chemoradiation. That has never been studied. That's never been studied to my knowledge. There's no... Hmm. Uh, I know why that's wrong. A is wrong because if you get surgery, you don't get chemo RT on the back end, you just get chemo. Uh, right? There's no trial of chemo RT on the back end. Actually, right. there is. The, the McDonnell. Is the McDonald's study like that? My guess is most people would pick neoadjuvant chemoradiation simply because the cross trial is so well known hold on no I, I i misspoke actually so the mcdonald regimen is that way so yeah the mcdonald 2001 surgical resection of adenocarcinoma of the stomach which included some people with ge junction were randomized to surgery or alone or chemo rt on the back end survival benefit for chemo rt group uh suggesting Postoperative chemoradiotherapy is considered in all patients who've undergone curative resection, but there's one thing different, which is I bet, I bet the surgery was different. Let's see. I don't know. I don't know why you couldn't do that. Hmm. Makes it an interesting question. It makes though. an interesting question. Yeah. Why can't you do an esophagectomy? I think you can't do. I think this surgery they have to do more than esophagectomy is remove the stomach too. Hmm. Like I said, I think most people, like myself, picked the last question or the last answer simply because that looks familiar to me yeah i think it's because the surgery is wrong in this question all right well, well all right dr olson thanks for that question of the week you're welcome i'm back in plenary session hq with questions from a medical student with audrey tran audrey it's great to see you again nice to be here thanks for having me this is a popular segment people really like your questions oh thank you we've gotten a lot of listener feedback they say Derek Tao, he can go, but Audrey, <laughs> she's got to stay. That's what they say. I don't know. I don't know what they say, but so Derek, if you're listening, this is how this is how you're gonna find out. No, just kidding. <laughs> All right. So what do we have this week? Yeah. So this week, I thought um, 
we do something that's a little timely, especially with all my fourth year friends on the interview trail mm. um, to talk about interview season and just some tips, I suppose, for people who are trying to really assess how can I tell if this place is a, somewhere I'm going to thrive. I think that's, I know that there's lots of talk and discussions about like, you know, how to get to the residency you want. But I, mm -hmm. for me, one of the questions I'm asking is how to even know what I want right. or how can I even tell and especially in interview uh, in a day or, or a couple of days, it's that's where you make all the most of your decision, I assume. And so my question is just kind of, what tips do you have for assessing workplace culture? Um, how did you personally approach this as a fourth year medical student? And I guess now that you do travel to different places and mm -hmm. stuff like that, how do you suss out what what a place feels like? What a place feels like, and if it's like a good fit for what you're interested in. Exactly. All right, it's a good question. Well, I guess, let me start by saying some practical things I think fourth years can do that maybe few people will argue with me about. But, you know, once you've decided what specialty you want to go into, you should make a list of all the places you want to apply. And no matter what you're going into, unfortunately, that can be anything from 15 to maybe 50 or 100 places. If you're maybe in dermatology, there could be a lot on your list. And I like to say that at the outset, however many places are on your list, um, you should kind of sit down and just make a hierarchy of like where you'd prefer to go based on maybe geography, what little you know about the program, and just make a rank list. And then what I, the reason you do that, I think, is because as the season progresses, you're going to be getting offers of interviews and you're going to get them fast and furious. And every time you get an interview, I think you should just go ahead and book that date and time as you get them in real life. Um, but know in your mind that you're probably only realistically going to be able to go to like eight, nine, 10, maybe 11 interviews. Um, and what that means is as you get interviews on the top of your preference list, um, it, they can knock out interviews on the bottom. So let's say you've gotten eight interviews and they're distributed and you know you want to do kind of eight interviews and that's what your advisor says is reasonable for your specialty choice. Then you get a ninth interview. If it's below the last you know entry on your list, then you know you don't even take it. But if it's up high on your list, you take it and then you call mm -hmm. the last person and say, look, I have to drop out. So that you're constantly in real time, at least you're going to go to the eight that are at your outset your preference. Then what I encourage people to do is once they decide on how many they're going to go on, as you go through the process, every time you interview at a place, you should just rewrite your rank list into like a book. Because mm -hmm. someday, okay. maybe not in that moment, but years from now, maybe you'll look back and you'll say, wow, you know, it really changed a lot. Like I didn't know all these things and it moved in all these different ways. Um, okay. So that's just like a practical thing you can do. Then I think like, you know, what should you look for? Um, I guess I would say that I think it's important what you said, which is that the interview is a two-way street. We think so often like you want to make a good impression, um, but you can't forget that they have to make a good impression on you. It's really like you have to decide if you want to be there. And so to that end, I think you should be quite frank in the kinds of questions you ask. Um, I guess at the level of, of residency, a lot of things are kind of taken off the picture, which is that you know salary is going to be the same everywhere there held through some monopolistic rules at some <laughs> flat rates. But I guess what you can probe is, you know, in your first year, how many months of service do you do? Those often are largely standardized too through different accreditation bodies. Um, but I think you need to get a sense of what is the second year and third year like? What are the research opportunities like if that's what you want to do? Um, what is the clinical training like? How many hospitals do you rotate at? How often do you go to those hospitals? Do you ever cover multiple hospitals? Um, how often do you take call? When you take call, how often do you get paged? Do attendings cover their own pager or do you have to cover outpatient calls as well? What is call like? And then kind of this intangible of, you know, asking 
people and kind of looking to see do people look rested and happy um, when you go to morning report or the case conference are they engaged are they having a you know a good discussion that you wish that someday you'd be a part of and that kind of intangible quality um, I think you can pick up um, you know you allude to the fact that I I travel more than I'd like to unfortunately to give like lectures and then every time I go places they always have me meet with different people and I guess I've been doing a lot of I have different interests at this stage but I I do a lot of informal surveys and I always ask people you know when they work at a place and this is among faculty Mm -hmm. I always ask them you know do you like working here and and I'll tell you the number one side the number one warning response Okay. okay go ahead and ask me do you like working at this place well, you know, Portland's a really lovely city, and um, <laughs> you know, we have a really nice summer, and there's this bike path. I'm just reading your face right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's the number one thing I get. I go and ask somebody, "Do you like working at this place?" And then they say, "Well, Chicago is lovely in the summertime. There's a lot of great restaurants, and my family's here, and blah blah, blah and all these things." Um, but they didn't answer the question, and and that to me is like the first of that means I'm just going to keep kind of uh, of hitting at that wall until I finally get to hear you know what they think. Mm-hmm. And I guess I would say that re, you know one of the things I've learned from asking this from so many people because I always ask people this um, is um, there's an epidemic of like unhappiness. It seems like to me. I mean, just so many people just don't like working wherever they're at, and it's often recurring problems that you know that nobody seems nationally to care about, which is that doctors are doing non-doctor work, and there's more of it right. than ever, and there's pressures for billing, and they don't get to practice the way they want to practice, and things that you know I'm deeply sympathetic to because I agree that those are problems. Um, the other thing I ask is, and um, you know, this is always this is not something I'd advise somebody to ask um, at, sure. at the at the residency level, but I do think you can ask, you know. Are, do you enjoy working here? Are, do you enjoy being a resident here? Do you like it here? And and you can even ask, like, what don't you like if there was anything you could change? Or you could also, the other nice question to ask people is like, um, uh, of all the places you interviewed, if you weren't here, what's the other place you would have liked to be? You know, what was your mm-hmm. second choice? Uh, but maybe it might have been their first choice. You know, you never know. <laughs> but, you know, what's your what, what, what place you'd like to be? Because then you get a sense of like, what are the other places out there that people generally like? And then they have less of an allegiance bias to that. Um, but the one question I also ask people as faculty, which I don't ask um, as a resident and I would not ask, is this question of, do you feel like you're adequately compensated? Like, are you are you adequately paid? Um, and the reason I ask that is because uh, the answers are, is really sobering. A lot of places people don't feel that they're adequately paid and adequately compensated and that it's not clear how pay changes over time and how you get promoted and how you get more pay. And there's feelings that there's perhaps almost surely gender bias and gender inequity or maybe even other types of inequity mm-hmm. that we just don't even have access to the data to probe all the ways there might be inequities in the system. Um, so that's also an illustrative question to me. And the reason I say this is that like, you know, I was saying that in recent months, I was at one place where the answer was like nine out of 10 people said they like working there and like 10 out of 10 said they felt adequately compensated. Wow. And I was like, D-, you know, I like, that's the jackpot. Yeah. I was thing. like, what's going on? Yeah. Sign me up. <laughs> Sign me up. I was like, yeah, this is interesting. I was like, wow, people are very happy here. I'm shocked to hear. I was like, what's going on? They're doing something different. Um, okay. But back to your question about interviews. So I think you can ask those kinds of questions. You can learn a lot by um, uh, just kind of soaking it in and see what you see. Um, I give the same advice that other people give, which is like, you need to find a way on the day of the interview to just kind of turn off your phone so that you're not having any distractions so you can kind of be there because they're, for better or worse, people are judging you and like all of your interactions. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, 
I've often heard in some of these meetings after the fact that somebody was, you know, on the phone during the tour and somebody thought it was disrespectful. And I was like, well, you know, it is a tour of a mm-hmm. hospital and they do look <laughs> similar. So, you know, I, yeah. I, I tend not to be so uptight about little things like that. But, sure. but there are lots of uptight people in the it's, world. It's actually kind of funny you say that because, I mean, definitely just, just the optics of, of looking at a phone, it, it's hard to know even what you're doing, but I think everyone assumes the worst yeah you know it just seems so it's a very millennial thing yeah. like about to take a selfie or yeah. I, I don't know um <laughs> and i just i i understand there's so many different things you could be doing that are like very important or but it but it is just like there's something about that where you can look at someone and be like oh disconnected like Disc- not engaged right exactly that's not the <laughs> kind is, of person yeah. we want here mm-hmm. and um but i think probably if you were to empirically study these things it would probably have very poor predictive value because that person could have just had something going on on one day that they needed to right you know for all you know something deeply personal and troublesome is going exactly. on and they like <laughs> exactly. need to take a call or a text mm-hmm. um you know but anyway um so those are, those are the things that, you know, I think it's, like, important to get a sense of the place. I think, um, I, you know, I don't know if I have the best perspective because I, I was in internal medicine where I already knew at the outset that a lot of things are kind of similar. Like, you're going to see COPD. You're going to see heart failure. You're going to mm-hmm. be in the CCU. You're going to be in the MICU. You're going to do, right. like, one or two months of onc. Like, it's very, con- you know, there are a lot of similarities. And internal medicine is, like, maybe more similar than dissimilar across training sites. Um, where I think it might be a little bit different is the places like surgery. So I had a good friend who went into neurosurgery, and he was like, well, you know, in the Mayo Clinic, they have an apprenticeship model. You spend four months with an attending. You really learn their craft. Then you go to a different attending for four months. And in a lot of places, it's like this pooled resident model where mm-hmm. they're kind of just covering all the service. Um, and, and he really liked the apprenticeship model. So I was like, that's a, like a legitimate difference in training philosophy that, you know, is very appealing to him. And I think there might be other such examples field by field. And um, and also, if you were like undifferentiated between research and practice, then it's nice to go to a place where graduates have gone into both. Um, and uh, and that probably was true for my training because I went to Northwestern University and it was really a place where people did go into research, but a lot of people went into practice, and so mm-hmm. that was good for me in that sense. And then I think I don't know. I put a big premium on like you need to be at a place in a city that you have friends and family and that you that part of your life will be intact because residency is a very grueling time already um and it is nice i think when like if your parents come over and drop you off some food like that goes a long way so (laughs) you know i think i do take that into account and then i think um i i don't put tons of stock in this like go to the place with the best reputation um, mm-hmm. But if you were to put stock in that, I think obviously it's most important for the last place you train rather than the first place you train. It's like people care most about like the last fellowship you did. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and in terms of faculty positions. What do your friends say about this process? Oh, I, f- I feel like it's um, it's funny because I feel like they're so tied to their emails right now. Or they'll say like, I feel like the minute I get an email, I need to respond. For like booking interviews? For booking interviews. Yeah, because they book fast. They book fast. It's, yeah. So it's just, it's a different, it's a different type of uh, vigilance, I suppose. Yeah. Um, it's just exhausting, I think, to, to kind of schedule your life. And so most of my friends, um, you know, we play in, in a in a band together. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, we've had to like downsize because everyone's in away rotations. and like see. planning all these. So There's no brass anymore. No brass. <laughs> exactly. No brass. We're sounding thin. Yeah, it sounded but, thin. Yeah. <laughs> but, but most, I think what it is, is just that it's, it's just a lot of, it's a lot of information. You know, you're, you're getting, you're getting all these things and you're, you're trying to look your best and like present your best. But I think it's had, the, the decisions haven't really hit them or, um, 
that that capacity to be like I know what place I want it's more just like I'm just trying to get through the next few months and making sure that like all all my like uh, I don't know requirements for school are satisfied as well as all the things I need to do in order to succeed at this in this trail yeah but it's just a long it's a long time too it's a long time so. Oh, the last thing that it made me think about is the one thing that I would say you should go to, like you shouldn't skip, are like the evening, um, meet the fellows, meet the residents, those mm-hmm. kind of events, the night before, the night after. Mm-hmm. Like that is gold to go to in terms of getting a sense of the culture of the place okay. and getting people to kind of speak more freely and mm-hmm. extemporaneously about their experiences. And so I think that like you do yourself a disservice if you just shoot in for the interview and shoot out, mm-hmm. um, you know, without taking the time to go to those things and kind of get a sense of like what this place is like. Um, so, That's a good point. yeah. And then I think probably the thing that might make people feel better is probably at the end of the day, um, since places are more similar than dissimilar, you're probably going to do okay no matter where you go. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That's, I think that's reassuring here. It's like you will land somewhere. Yeah, you will land probably in the and same you place you would have otherwise place. landed. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Audrey, for question of the week. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to season two of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.